Okay, we're going to look at Micah chapter 2. And this is a two-parter, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And the title is basically The Sins of the Leaders. The Sins of the Leaders. That's what he's talking about in chapter 2 through 3, The Sins of the Leaders. And it's true, things do rise and fall with leadership, and leaders have a huge impact on their culture. And no less here for Israel. And what an appropriate time to talk about such things when we're coming into an election season. Um, So I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. But I will tell you this, the more righteous of a leader that is in any office, the better it is for that community. The, the one, the leaders that believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, just to tell you, there's not many of them, but ones that actually believe this book, those will be the ones that get the first priority of my vote every single time. I don't, and, and, and for me, that, that, that I, I'm not... Um, beholden to any party, because I've already cast my vote for the party I'm a part of, right? I'm a part of King Jesus' party. But I'm telling you, um, the leaders have a huge impact. And we see that in our text of chapter 2 and 3 today. But we're going to be talking about their sins. And of course, we're going to be related to our lives because we're sinners as well. And I have a phrase I want to say to you that I'll probably say it over and over. The most dangerous and, da- the most dangerous and disastrous activity of man is not getting, not getting within, within two feet of somebody right now. The most dangerous and disastrous activity of man is not going into the store without a mask. The most dangerous and disastrous activity of man is sin. That's the most dangerous thing. In our text today, this is what's happening. The leaders of, Is, of, of, of the southern kingdom of Judah, they are inviting... God's discipline hand on them because of their sin. And it will be da- it's dangerous and it will invite disaster. Now, you know what's interesting? During this time, King Hezekiah, a good king, religious reforming king, what's interesting, he's the leader. And in chapter 2 and 3, it's decrying the sins of the leader at the time. But, I, but what's interesting, King Hezekiah is not even mentioned in these two chapters. One asks themselves, why would that be? Well, I can tell you why, what I think. I think King Hezekiah is not mentioned is because he's actually a good king. He's doing religious reform. He's trying to return them back to observing the Mosaic word of God, the Mosaic law and the word of God. However, just because there's a good king does not mean all the uh, underling leaders are good as well. You can have a great king, but still have very corrupt people in your government. And I think that's what was going on. Although King Hezekiah was making great changes... King Hezekiah could not change the heart of men. And as great as King Hezekiah, which, by the way, at the end of his life, he had some pride that caused a downfall in Babylonian captivity. But as much as a great king Hezekiah was, he would never be the great king of the king that Israel really needed. There would come a future king, and that king was King Jesus. As great as Hezekiah was, he couldn't change the heart of his government. But there'll come one someday. Oh, when he comes, he'll change the heart of the government. All will bow the knee to him. But yet we're here today and we're talking about their leaders. And first we're going to talk about really their kind of nobility leaders in the country. These are more the administrators, the judges. These people have high political capital. These people are controlling the systems from judges to administrators to town administrators to people who are over codes. These were the powerful people. And they were doing some damage. They were doing some sins. Let's look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Let me read this for you. And then we'll kind of work through the text. Would you do this? Let's just kind of... uh, We haven't done this in a while. But let's take our copy of God's Word. And would you just stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word. And let's just read the text. And just let God talk to us through the Holy Spirit as we... Read this text. This is, people always say, like, I want to have the Holy Spirit talk to me. And my next thing is, well, great. Just read the Bible. If you read the Bible, then the Holy Spirit is talking to you in that moment when you read the Bible. That's 100% sure of it. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Thus 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, but it will be a time of disaster. And that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach as such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You stripped the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses and from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a, with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about in utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock, like in, in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. Let's go to him. Thank you for the word. This is a difficult passage to teach, to understand from just your first reading. Sometimes it's even difficult to know, like, who is being addressed in which way and from what perspective. God, give us clarity of your word. What do you mean the original recipients to understand from this text? Let us find it, then let us make the application in 2020. We lean on you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, you may be seated. By the way, some of you are new in here. Um, you, we, we have our masks on when uh, you know we come in, go out. But you're welcome to take your mask off if you want to while we're preaching sermon. But you can keep it on if you want to. But just to let you know, if you need a breather, you're more than welcome to take it off during the sermon while we're seated. Um, and so, uh, you, just so you know that, that, that option is there. So here's what we have. Let's look at verse 1. By the way, it, you know... It's a little confusing when you first read chapter 2, isn't it? It's, it's a little, it seems a little chaotic. But I'm going to help you with it. We're going to look at it together. Look at verse 1. The first thing, we're looking at the sins of the leaders. Point number one is this. They desired sin. These leaders, these nobility. First, that's what we're looking at. These administrators and judges, they desired sin. Look in verse 1. Woe, and this woe is to these nobility, these judges, these administrators, these corrupt landowners. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Evil on their beds. It's telling that these people were so, they so desired sin, they would go to bed at night thinking of ways that they can strip land from people and oppress poor people and do this kind of social injustice in their land. And then it says this, when the morning dawns, they perform it. So not, not only are these, these nobility thinking about how they're going to do evil ahead of time, but also when the morning arises, it's not... I mean, have you ever thought about sin as you were going to bed, but by the morning you woke up and it's like you spent some time with the Lord and you're like, man, why was I so bitter about people? Why was I so unforgiving? And like, man, it's a new day, a new step forward. That's not these people. They wake up the next morning when the morning dawns. They perform it. With them, it's this idea of might is right. If I have the might to do it, then I have the right to do it. They perform it because it is in the power of their hand. So these nobility, they desire sin. Now, how do we know when we're desiring sin? Well, we think about it. You know, the Bible uses different words to talk about sin. We have the word sin, but the Old Testament also uses words like transgression and trespass when he uses those words it's talking about you're more thinking about that sin ahead of time i mean some sin we get into uh, although we're sinners it's almost a little bit of an accident i'll give you an example have you ever been driving somewhere with 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 another friend or a spouse or a family member and it was a good day you were heading out to do good things it was going to be a fun day and 
someone says one thing and you, you kind of interpret it a different way. And before you know it, which was a nice, calm, great day, goes through about an hour worth of bickering. Y'all know nothing about that, right? Yeah, never even happened. Don't even know it. Some, that's kind of, we kind of step into sin, that's kind of accidental, but still a part of our sinful nature. But there's other times where sin is more of a transgression, right? It, it's more of like a trespass. You thought about it. You intended to do it. It was premeditated. That's what it's talking about. They desire sin. They're doing it. Instead of counting sheep, they're counting ways that they can sin. Now, particularly, the sin and evilness that they did is revealed in verse 2. They covet fields and seize them and houses. They take them away. They oppress a man in his home, a man in his inheritance. So here's what was happening. These mobility, these these wealthy landowners were paying off judges and administrators and finding out ways that they could take the land from people who were poor. Or in some ways, what would happen, what would happen to Israel is this. If you had land and you got into a difficult financial position, you could sell that land. And you could sell it for a price, and the price was determined by how far away what was called the year of Jubilee was to be there. The year of Jubilee was every 50 years in Israel. And at that 50th year mark, all land was to be returned back to its original owner. It was kind of like a way of canceling the debt, keeping people out of poverty, every kind of reset every 50 years. It was called the year of Jubilee. It was, a, it was like the mega Sabbath year. It was the mega rest of the Lord for God's people. Which is interesting, when you read the Bible, you don't really find much evidence that they ever actually did the year of Jubilee. Although a historian by the name of Josephus says that Israel observed the year of Jubilee up until the Babylonian captivity. It just doesn't seem to be very thick and rich in the pages of scripture. And one wonders why would that be? Well, probably because of this. How in the, I mean like, God set up a system for them to have the year of Jubilee it, it, he set up a system of I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to make sure that you have enough crops and food before Jubilee starts, so that when it starts, you'll have enough supplies. But take off work, rest the land, give the land back. I mean, everything goes back to nil zero, and that was a really, I mean, that would be a really hard thing for people to do, right? Take that kind of Sabbath. Yeah, the people could never do it right. Why? Because there would come someone someday who could really do the Sabbath right, right? There would come one, one day who could actually bring about Jubilee. I mean, it was hard for a person to go, wait a minute, this land that I've been using, I bought this extra land at year 30, and it's brought me all these resources, and like, how can I do this? And I'm over leveraged. It's just like you couldn't give it all up. Because there would come an ultimate Jubilee of Jesus Christ who would come in, and he had the power to overcome sin, death, hell, and the grave. But nonetheless, what happened is these landowners would come in and, and maybe they would give you a lower price. The price you paid for land, if, you, if someone got in debt and what you sold it for, had to be appropriate to how long before Jubilee came in. So some of these administrators were manipul- letting the prices be manipulated. It's even possible some of this was they weren't correctly observing the year of Jubilee. Some of this land should have possibly been given back and it wasn't. Or it's also possible... Because in Jeremiah 34, you read that the last king, Zedekiah, Israel, Jeremiah tells Zedekiah, hey, one of the things you need to do is, on the seventh year, you need to release all the indentured Israelite slaves as what was supposed to happen every seven years. Indentured Israelite slaves were supposed to be set free. You haven't been doing this. Zedekiah says, Lord, we'll repent. And everybody does it. And then they, as soon as they let their Israelite indentured servitude slaves free, guess what they do? They go and cobble them back in, right? So one wonders if even some of this was some perversion of Jubilee where instead of giving the land back or giving it back for a little bit, they find some creative way to, to leverage that land back into them. I don't know. We're not told exactly. But what I know is this. The way these Noble, re, these, this nobility, the administrators, these wealthy landowners, these judges, they were somehow in a, in a, in a illegal way seizing houses, taking it away. And then also would be this. If you've got more land, then you need people to work that land. And so there also, it says, a man and his inheritance. So it's also possible that they were somehow manipulating and keeping indentured servitude Israelites longer than they were to do it, which just a side thing. 
Israelites had indentured servitude, it was not chattel slavery like what we did here in America, right? Their indentured servants in Israel were to be released at every seven years. They were even to be sent out with kind of a nest egg to restart life over with. And there were heavy laws and regulations, and they had to treat them like brothers. It is not the same, it's not the same parallel. So whatever was happening, these leaders were not obeying the Mosaic law, which said... Basically, you've got to set indentured servants free. You've got to return houses. You can't, there is a legal way. You cannot just take man's possession. But they were doing it. Now, my point is this. They desired sin, though. And that's why they did it. We don't sin because the devil makes us sin. Not true. Can he tempt us to sin? Absolutely. Can he make us sin? Nope. And guess what? This will be a shocking one. Your children don't make you sin. I know, they don't make it, it's not their fault, you know. So when we're yelling full steam at them, they're not the ones that made us do that. Now, I, I don't negate, they could have been provoking to us to do such things, right? I'm not going to negate that one. We're dealing with sinners here, right? It wasn't them that did that, that was our own desire. See, sin starts at a desire level. Well, it's interesting. This is why my first point is they desired sin. This is why they did what these leaders did. They desired it. Notice in verse 2 it says, They covet fields. They seize them. Houses take away. They oppress a man, his house. They covet. That's why on their bed they were thinking about what they were going to do. And the next day they wake up and they follow through because they coveted. Here's the interesting thing. Hold your place in Micah and turn over to James chapter 1. I want to kind of float through a couple things. In James 1.14, desire. The reason we sin is because we desire to sin. We desire. I, I want to give you a couple things about this word desire, how it relates to coveting and lust and worship. James 1.14 says this, But each person is tempted... When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. His own desire. We sin because we desire to sin. And by the way, the word there, desire, is the word epithemia. It's a worship word. You know, that word epithemia, sometimes, if the object is good, sometimes in the Bible, that word epithemia is used. Like, if the object is good, it's called, usually translated the word desire. If the object is bad, it usually translates that word lust, but it just depends on your translation. But the, the word is not bad, it's just a worship word. The word epithemia in its noun form, epithemio in its verb form, that word, that Greek word used there, just denotes something you desire. Now here's what I want to get to. Go back, hold your place in James 1, then, 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 hold, your, then hold your place in Micah 2. Now flip back over in Micah 2 and look at the word they covet. You know what's interesting? That word covet in the Hebrew is the same word used for covet in the Ten Commandments. And that word means desire. Something you're wanting and desiring. What's even more interesting is one of the Bibles that Jesus would have consulted during his time was called the Septuagint Bible. The Septuagint Bible was a Greek translation of Hebrew Old Testament Scripture. And what's interesting, when you go over to Exodus 20 for Thou shalt not covet, right? And even when you look right here in Micah chapter 2, verse 2, that word covet, remember, the Septuagint, it was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, a Bible circulating during Jesus' time. One that Jesus actually did quote from some. Guess what Greek word is used for that word covet? Epithemia, epithemio. The same word that's used in James chapter 1, verse 14. It's a desire word. It's all over. Now, here's the deal. These, um, these men were doing what they did because they desired sin. They coveted. That's what it is. And by the way, you know when Jesus came in in Matthew 5, 27, and he said, uh, you should not commit adultery, which is one of the Ten Commandments, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right? Remember he said that? Now I've heard people go... You know, we have the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. But when Jesus came on the scene, he brought the heart matter of the Ten Commandments. But I would go, actually, no, the heart was already there the whole entire time. 
It's interesting. When Jesus says in the text of everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, guess what the Greek word there is? Epithemia, right? So the, the deal is this. We were, desire always led us into sin. Actually, here's what I tell people. Take the Ten Commandments, take the very last commandment, thou shalt not covet. If you don't do the Tenth Commandment, you'll keep the rest of the commandments, right? Because it all starts at coveting. It all starts with desire, which is this idea. How does a person get out of sin? Hard thing, right? When I say a person get out of sin, what I'm talking about is, if you're not a follower of Jesus, first you, you back up and confess your sin Trust him as Lord and Savior and become his disciple. But I'm talking, how does a disciple of Jesus, someone who has bowed the knee to Jesus, they belong to Jesus, but they find themselves constantly struggling back and forth with sin. What's the answer? How do they get out of it? It all has to do with desire, my friend. It has to do with what do you desire? So John Wesley's, I've told this story, but John Wesley's, uh, when, you know, the great hymn writer, when he went to college away, he asked his mom, and said, give me a list of do's and don'ts while I'm away so that I won't get into sin. And his mom writes back and basically says, I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. Not going to do that. She said, whatever stirs your heart and affections for the Lord, do that. Whatever doesn't, don't. How does a person handle sin? How, do they, how does a disciple of Jesus fight sin? It's all about do you desire God? Do the things in life that desire God. So, you remember, you look at the text in verse 1. What are these guys doing? Why are they desiring? Why are they coveting these lands? Because at night on their bed, they're thinking about it. They're meditating over it. They're thinking to themselves, oh, what pleasure I will receive if I can just get more lands and get more indentured servants and get more money. And oh, what what joy it'll bring to my life. It would all change if they would have said, oh, what joy is there in obeying what, what the Lord has told us. Let me use my resources to bless the poor. You understand? And wherever your desires are, that's everything else will follow. So like a person says, like, how do I fight sin? You desire God. Do the things in life that drive a passion for who Jesus Christ is. This will always involve the word of God. I'm telling you, just listen to me, please. You will never have victory at fighting sin if your nose is not in this book. I promise you, you will never be able to fight sin. Now, I'm not going to, this isn't your only weapon, but this is your main weapon. Times of being in the Lord in prayer, times of singing to the Lord, times of using the gifting that God has given you. If you're a servant-oriented person, I guarantee you, every meal you serve a person, you're increasing your desire for God. I love John Piper's kind of, his whole ministry has been based off this idea that God is most satisfied in, uh, God is most glorified in us, we're most satisfied in him. And that's where it is. I mean, like, you worship your way out of it. Like men who struggle with lust, you know how they, how they get out of lust? They have to actually lust after something else. They have to worship and desire something else. When Jesus becomes greater, when he is desired, when he becomes the treasure, when he becomes the joy, sin does not have the platform to land in our life. It doesn't, it isn't, it doesn't taste as good. So that's these guys, though. They desire sin. They want sin. They, and that's why they do it. And we get out of it by desiring God. By worshiping him. It's a worship word. This word epithemia for covet, desire. It's a worship word. It all depends on what you're worshiping. Hopefully that makes sense. Turn up your worship. If you're struggling in sin, turn up your worship. Sing to him. Read to him. Talk about him. Witness for him. Disciple for him. Do all the things that get you excited for who he is. If that's, if that's, if, if that's like, I get... I, I, I get, receive pleasure from God when I get on social media and post, post scriptures about the Lord or when I study scripture and give scripture, then do that. Like whatever drives a desire and passion for him. Now notice this. It Flip back over to John, uh, James 1.15. Notice the rest of this. He says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So it starts with our own desire, but when it's conceived, when it's, when it's impregnated, it, it gives birth to sin. Notice the next part of Micah chapter 2, verse 2. What do they do? Their sin conceived. 
And because they desired sin, they went and got fields, they seized them, houses, they oppressed, and they took away people's inheritance. This is what happens eventually when we get into sin. We don't obey the Lord. So, look at the end of it. James 1.15, it says, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Now look at verse 3 of our text. So we discovered they desired sin. Now number 2, they would be disciplined for their sins. And that's the part of James 1.15. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Like this is what the prophet is letting them know. He's saying you desired sin... And that desire led you to actually conceiving of sin. You took the land, and then not only that conceived it, but now it's going to bring death. Verse 3, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. Remember, the most dangerous and disastrous thing is sin. So the prophet says, Nobles, all the land you took, all the land you stole, all the disobeyment of the year of Jubilee, all the disobeyment of the seventh Sabbath year of release, all that you have gone against, someday that will all be taken away from you. Babylon's coming. It's going to be gone. All that you think is yours is... Cause, cause, and by the way, here's what's awesome. The reason you returned the land back was not only to kind of reset at year 50, but to remind everybody that this land actually never belonged to anybody but the Lord. It was all just a lease program, right? And it all just reset and came back. It was to remind everybody, the Lord has appointed this. The Lord is the one that designed this. Now notice this in verse 3. You shall not walk haughtily. Haughtily is pride. Pride, Proverbs says, goes before destruction. And by the way, every sin at its root traces back to pride. Every sin traces back to pride. I mean, like for instance, when you're told what time your curfew is, and then you go, but my friend over here says their parents let them have a curfew at this time, the root of that is pride, right? It's like I should do what I want to do, right? The, the root of every sin we do is, is pride. And this is what's happening. And here's what God promises in the Scripture. If you make much of yourself, God will humble you. If you humble yourself, God will exalt that. Here's what happens. These nobles, these leaders, they are exalting themselves. And God says, I'm going, I'm like, no one can stop the disaster I'm going to put on your necks for all that you've oppressed people, that you've stolen from them. And it all started with their own desire for sin. It's going to be a disaster for you nobles. And your pride is what's caused this. By the way, God had made a way. If you were to go back and read Deuteronomy 28 through chapter 30, if you were to read Leviticus chapter 26, God had given them all the conditions and said, if you obey me, then blessings will come in the, Mosaic, in, in the land of Israel, according to the Mosaic law. Like, it, it, you'll be blessed. But they violated it. Which, by the way, just, I, we don't have time to turn to it. But I will tell you this. You know what be something cool? Go back to Leviticus 26 sometime and read about... Actually, do 25 and 26. <laughs> and the Lord gives warnings to them that if they don't obey the Mosaic law, it's not going to go good for them in the land and they'll head into exile. But then in the midst of that, Leviticus still promises in the end, God's going to hold true to his Abrahamic covenant and you'll come back to the land, right? I mean, this I love. Although they're going to be unfaithful, God will always be faithful. But that's another sermon. Actually, I preached that, I think, a couple weeks ago. Now, point number three. So, not, point number one is they desired sin. Point number two, they would be disciplined for their sins. And God will discipline us for our sins. Number three, they would experience sorrow and confusion because of their sin. Sorrow and confusion because of their sin. Look in verse four. Now, by the way, here's what's happening in verse four. It's, it's kind of prophesying to a future time, like Babylon would be coming and taking them. And as Babylon was coming to take them, their kind of moan and lament would be, wait a minute, how can a foreign power be coming to take us? I thought we were children of Abraham. I thought, this was, I thought God had promised us this land. Well, they were forgetting that it was a conditional promise temporarily with the Mosaic law. But long term, yeah, they get to come back because God's faithful to his unconditional promises. But nonetheless, they're chanting out to these pagan Babylonians, I cannot believe that the Lord has done this. We're ruined. He's taken our inher- this 
foreign nation has taken our land. They are removing us from our land. Apostates now have the land of Israel. I cannot believe this. So they're, it's like that's what, the Jew, that's what the people of Israel are saying when the Babylonian captivity happens later. And what happens is the Babylonian captors kind of hear that and they start taunting them with their own messages. That's what's happening in verse 4. It says this, In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you. The taunt song would be the Babylonians coming in. And moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our field. The apostates would be the Babylonians who will take over the southern kingdom of Judah's lands. So, notice this. Although it's a taunt, the taunt comes from what the people of Israel are saying. And notice this. We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. Now, here's the deal. They should not, what they're saying, Israelites should never be surprised by what's happening to them. God warned them and telecasted it over and over. Gave them prophet after prophet after prophet and warned them and told them where there was no mistaking what was going to happen. And yet, here's what happens. Because of their sin, they miss it. Because of their sin, they get confused and sorrowful and never see the whole entire thing coming. And by the way, this is the disaster of sin. When we are desiring sin and giving into it, even the way we read the word starts to get a little bit corrupted. I hear this, I hear lies all the time people say. Like people who are reading the word, they'll say things like, when something like bad happens in their life, they'll go, there's no way God was a part of that. There's, there's no way God had anything to do with that. And you're like, man, where did you ever get that God just like created the world, spun it on a globe and just put his hands off of it and whatever happens just haphazardness. But when we're living a life of sin, we kind of with a veil cloaked over our face don't see the truthfulness of God's word its entirety. And I can promise you this, anything that happens in your life, God's hand is a part of that, right? If he's not sovereign over all, he's not sovereign at all. So I wonder, what's happening to these guys is they're confused because of their sin. They're experiencing sorrow. They're expressing like, I can't believe, I thought this was our land, we're ruined. I thought this was our portion, he's removing, I can't believe he made these promises. Yeah, but they were only reading their promises in light of what they wanted to read. They, they, they loved the Abrahamic covenant, but they didn't like the Mosaic covenant, right? Are you, are you, are you hanging with me? Do you understand if... If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, go back a couple weeks. I talked about the covenants. By the way, just a side note. There is just about nothing wrong, nothing more <laughs> damaging, I think, than being taunted. You ever been taunted? Right? Just taunted. I can remember my senior year in high school. Um, we, we, were, we were undefeated, one of the top-ranked football teams in the state. And in our second round of the playoffs, we played what, beca- what did go on to be the state champions uh, in 4A that year. Right? So... Um, we were playing a, a, a high school called Grapevine. And as we were playing them, I mean, we hang in, hung in there about the first quarter. Then after that, they slaughtered us. And about the third quarter, I can remember the guy in front of me just yelled out in this most frustrating kind of, gr- kind of cry. And here's what he said. And by the way, they were winning. So there was no, I mean, they were winning by a lot. I think it was like 40 points at that point, right? Third quarter. Not much going to happen at that point. He yells in this, this so, he was so frustrated. And here's what he said. He said, ah, we were told you were better than this. And I can remember that moment being like, Lord, take me home. Like, wow, that was embarrassing. Like, like we're not even living up to what your coaches told us. Your coaches told you we would be the best team you've played all season. And you have destroyed us. That, I'm telling you. I mean, I got to tell you how long that, what that guy said in that moment just taunted my soul forever. Can you imagine? This is what's happening to these people. And they're sorrowed and confused over it. Like in that moment, I was, I was confused over that because, you know, actually, I thought we were that good. <laughs> but apparently we weren't. I was deceived. I was deceived because I didn't have truth. These people were deceived because they've been looking at truth, but looking at it from their own perspective. Which leads us into verse 6. So they desired sin, these leaders. 
they would be disciplined for their sins. Number three, they would experience sorrow and confusion because of their sins. And number four, they would ask that nobody preach about their sin. And they would seek preaching that justifies their sin. Let's say that again. They would ask that nobody preach about their sin. And they would seek preaching that justifies their sin. Oh, mind you me, they were still religious people. But they only wanted religion if it could be on their terms. Look at verse 6. This is interesting. The phrase they say is this. Do not preach. Now, the prophets, basically, he's quoting what they're telling him. Do not preach. They're telling Micah and the prophets, and they would be telling Isaiah, like, do not preach to us. You keep telling us what we don't want to hear. Do not preach. Instead, this is what Micah says in verse 6. Thus, they say, do not preach, of true, of true prophets. Thus, they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So what Micah is saying is, what they are saying to everybody is, do not preach prophets about our sin, but instead, we want false prophets who will preach to us things that have nothing to do with what you're saying, Micah. We want someone who will not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. We want somebody who will tell us there will be no exile. There will be no Babylon. There will be no Assyria attack. We want someone that will tell us everything's okay, nothing to worry about. That's the kind of preaching that we want. And by the way, what, what a symbol of sin. Like, what a symbol of sin. By the way, if you're online and, you know, if, if you're looking for a church and when you go to that church, you never hear truth that rubs against the culture of the day. That church may only be telling people what they want to hear. And by the way, people want it. I mean, it, people pick churches sometimes because that church is tell them, tells them what they want to hear, even if it's not the scriptures. I mean, and I hear people all the time say this about scripture. It, like, you can show them something in scripture and they'll go, well, that's not what, I, I don't think that's what that means. My God would never say that kind of thing. I'm like, well, he just did. Like, 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 am I taking crazy pills here? Like, come on. However, when we're mired in sin, we do not want true preaching about truth. We only want what the culture will offer us and we'll demand it. By the way, th- don't be surprised about it. Do this. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Listen, preaching shouldn't always be offensive, but sometimes it should offend. Especially when a culture has its own ideas. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He says this. Hold your place in Micah. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. He tells the young Timothy, the pastor Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead? Basically, he says, <laughs> Jesus is the true authority for your preaching. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. That was basically what they wanted. That when they were saying, do not preach of such things, disgrace will not overtake us. They were saying, we do not like what you say, Micah. We, we want these other prophets, these prophets that say, you know, because the Abrahamic covenant, no, no bad can ever happen to you. You can continue to sin and grace will just cover it. It's all under grace. Yes, sin is under grace, but that never gives us permission to just go sin any way we want to. But yes, that's the kind of preaching they wanted. And by the way, skip down to verse 11. We'll come back up to verse uh, 6 and 7, but skip down to verse 11. Look at something else he says regarding the kind of preaching they wanted. They didn't want preaching that talked about their sin. They wanted preaching that would just lay over and let them do whatever the culture has told them is okay. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. Mike is basically saying, you, you don't want anybody that tells you the truth. In fact, the kind of preacher you want is one that says, hey, everything's okay. There's no exile coming. 
There's, there's no obeying the Mosaic law, the, the civil and moral law for Israelite society. I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, like the preacher that will just tell you, party on, drink it up, have a good time, keep doing what you're doing. Nobles, keep taking this land, keep oppressing the poor, keep taking this from widows, like do whatever it can, make the bottom dollar, like it's okay. That's the kind of preacher that, that you want. You want a preacher that tells you, no worries. So this is what happens when we give in to sin. This is the kind of preaching that we want. This is, this is what they're wanting. Now but go back to verse 7. So Micah's in verse 7 is referencing verse 6. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Basically Micah's saying, should you be saying that statement that, that in verse 6 basically do not preach of such things, disgrace not overtake us. Like, should you be saying that, house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown, has the Lord grown impatient? Should, are these his deeds? Like, has the, Lord, has the Lord said, go ahead and do whatever you want to do? No, he says. Micah says, do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. If, like, you're walking with the Lord and doing what his word says, uh, uh, his words will bring life and pleasure to you. But yet they are... But yet these false teachers are giving a different narrative. And by the way, I think we see it in the church today. We really do. Like, have you ever noticed how many new songs that continue to be produced? You ever notice rarely do they talk much about sin? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? Like, no one wants to talk about it. Oh, it's so negative. Oh, you're just being so, so negative. Like, you don't have grace if you don't have God's holiness. Like, these two kissed at the cross, the mercy of God, yet the holiness of God. Like, if you don't see sin, then you don't appreciate grace. If you don't see sin, you don't repent. If you don't see sin, then you get confused about life. If you don't see sin, your sin will actually affect others. By the way, we even see this in our culture today more and more. By the way, I'm not trying to be a soapbox kind of thing, but in our current culture... It's so changing the landscape, and it's changing so rapidly. I preached a, a message two or three years ago about a biblical and gospel-centered view of homosexuality, and I even touched on transgenderism. Um, and, and here's the deal. Since that time, I continue to have people to go, you know, wait a minute. Isn't it okay, like, the Bible only condemned kind of raping homosexuality, and the Bible is all for homosexuality that is monogamous and committed. And that's, and you can find a lot of churches that will actually teach you that and tell you that. And my response to that is this. That's not what the Bible says over and over. That, that is man in his sin and in his own desire trying to make the Bible say something that he wants it to say. It's the same thing that these noble leaders are doing. They're twisting the Bible and trying to make it say what they want to say and even saying, don't give us pastors that will tell us opposite. Listen, in the softest words I can say, let me say this. It will never, ever, ever be God's will for someone who is a woman to be married to a woman. It won't be. It never is. You can never justify that. For a man to be married to a man, never justified in the scriptures. And by the way, you're going to be persecuted for even thinking such things. Now, I'm not saying go around and be mean and mad and nasty and ugly, but I'm saying this, that we can't be false prophets. You understand that? Like, we can't be false prophets. We can't be liars. Like, that's what they were saying. Don't preach to us. Don't tell us, don't, don't preach to us truth. Tell us what we want to hear. People want itching ears. By the way, I'll even lean in on this. And this is probably a little bit more controversial. <laughs> but I'm prepared for it, right? In our modern day, we're dealing with even a cultural shift with what's called the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and let me say this, personally, personally. Do I believe that Black Lives Matter? You bet I do. I believe that everybody's made in the image of God. So I do believe Black Lives Matter. And do I believe that our country has a... a a huge, um, for a good majority of the, I mean, so actually since the beginning, has our country not treated those of color well through chattel slavery, Jim Crow laws, redlining? Have there been disastrous things we've done to black lives? Absolutely. 
And has it seemed like black lives don't matter in our country? Absolutely. But I do not support the organization of Black Lives Matter. And I don't think any Christian who actually reads their Bible faithfully can support the organization of Black Lives Matter. In fact, I would tell you this. In me, I believe Black Lives Matter, but that does, I believe that is a statement of a fact, just like I believe Blue Lives Matter and White Lives Matter and All Lives Matter and all are made in the image of God. But, and, I, and by the way, I'm not a racist because I say that. Right? That's cultural Marxism. I don't believe that, okay? But I do believe Black Lives Matter. But I do not believe the organization of Black Lives Matter is an organization that any Christian can faithfully support. And here's why. I'll just read. If you go in and read their statement of faith, here's, many things are, are problematic scripturally, but let me just read for you two, two statements out of many. And I don't have time to do the whole thing, but let me just, you know, by the way, I'm not telling you this to try to be mean and ugly, by the way. I'm not trying to do that. Here's the reason I'm telling you. Because I'm reading this text this week, I'm like, you know, the culture was saying something different from the word, and, and like, shame on pastors if they don't actually help their people see truth, right? So, it, it, as it applies in their culture. So, here's one from their, this is their, you can go to their website right now and read this. It says this, part of the Black Lives Matter organization. Not the actual phrase, the thought, the truthfulness of Black Lives Matter, but the actual organization we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure required by supporting each other as extended vill- families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. I will tell you this. The nuclear family is not just a Western idea. It's a biblical idea. The scriptures specifically say in Ephesians 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The Ten Commandments specifically tell us that. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When it says we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement to support each other, what they're saying is you don't need a daddy. The village helps to raise Listen, if there's not a daddy, yes, yes, people have got to pitch in, and people need to pitch in and help single moms. But God's will is that daddy be there. God's will is that mommy and daddy raise those kids and discipline those kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is God's will. So do you understand, even the organization itself, it's unfaithful to biblical fidelity. Even another one, one another of many of their statement says this, we foster a queer-affirming network. Where we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or basically male and female. We believe that all the world um, um, thinking, or rather the belief that all the world are heterosexual, unless he or she discloses otherwise. What they're saying is you get to decide what you are the heterosexual normal, normacy of man and woman, like we disrupt that. We do not think that. That is, and what I would tell you is this, they're dead wrong. And that is not faithful. God created in his image, Genesis one twenty six, male and female, he created them. There's no way around that. But by the way, don't you understand that that idea is attacked? Like in the softest heart, I can say this. Even when it comes to transgenderism, Arabella and I were having a conversation the other day, and one of the things I told her is I said, listen, even if a person has a sexually assigned surgery, right, and they anatomically look like a man, although they used to be a woman, or the other way, a woman, but now a man, they have to take hormones for the rest of their lives. And as soon as they stop taking those hormones, their body naturally, his starts producing testosterone. Hers starts producing estrogen and progesterone, right? They, it starts already back. Why? Because God from creation has designed them for what sex they will be, and that is it. The, the honest truth is this. We are never allowed in the scripture to go, I was created a man, but I feel like a woman, thus that's what I am. Now I can say this. If you struggle with it, 
you're struggling with the curse of the fall just like we all struggle. Like, my struggle is with food. <laughs> That's why, like, in my 12 years here, you've seen Puffy Nick. <laughs> you've seen Thinner Nick. And chances are you're going to see, well, you're probably seeing more puffier Nick. And you'll probably see skinnier Nick. That's just where I struggle, right? Everybody struggles differently. If you're here today and you struggle with identifying, if you're, you're born as a man, but you're like, man, I feel like a woman, your feelings are not the indicator of truth. God's word is, right? Friend, don't give in to that, right? Don't give in to that. Yeah, that'll be, that could be a unique struggle for your whole life. But God is good. He can be trusted. So I, I, just even this, like, it, and by the way, I, I know I'll face repercussions <laughs> from saying such things, you know, but, but even something like a Black Lives Matter organization and movement is antithetical to biblical Christianity and cannot receive the support of God's people. This is truth, even as, even as mean as it may sound. And here's the deal. All the sin we do, the leaders' sin that they desired, although they'd be disciplined, they experienced sorrow, confusion because of it. They didn't want anybody to speak about their sin. They just wanted their sin to be justified. Here's one thing we got to understand about sin. It always affects others. To give into it, it affects others. You give into the radical, anti-biblical agenda of the organization of Black Lives Matter, it will reap destruction on our culture. It will, in all honesty. If you give into the radical um, agenda of the LBGTQ agenda, it will decay our culture. It will. Because sin always affects other people. When a daddy leaves his family, it affects that family. When a mom and dad do not reconcile in Jesus Christ, love their sin, and don't forgive each other, it affects their family. When a child decides that they will not honor God by honoring their parents' rules, even though they disagree with them, it'll, bring, it'll affect everybody around them. Our sin, our sin of cancel culture, which is this, there's no forgiveness or redemption for anybody. Anybody that sins, they can't, they can't confess their sin and be restored. That's kind of what cancel culture tells us. That affects everybody. Sin affects everybody around us. See, some people think it doesn't, but it does. Look at verse 8. But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. Basically, he's saying, because of all your sin, it has an effect on people. Like, the guy who's just walking along, and he doesn't even think there's war going on. Like, nothing bad's going to happen. He thinks in a time of peace. You go and strip the robe off him. Basically, you take the shirt off his back. This is how bad you're getting. You're taking from people by your perversion. Verse 9, the... The women of my children, you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children, you take away my splendor forever. He's saying, like, because you rich nobles, what you've done, and, and by the way, just <laughs> these rich nobles, they were doing this thing, and the, the false preachers the whole time were going, it's okay, people, what they're doing. I've said it's okay, right? Because who do you think was paying off these, these false preachers, right? Because, by the way, I'll tell you this. Anytime a preacher preaches something just because he gets paid, he's just a hireling, right? You never want a hireling. You never want a hireling. Oh, but I'm not against paying a pastor. I mean, come on, right? I'm not against that. But I'll tell you this. I've told people over and over. I don't care if I don't get paid for this, right? I don't care if I'm cleaning toilets. I'm going to preach, and I'm going to preach truth to the day I die. I don't care whether I get a dime for it, but I'll sure take it, right? But here's the deal. If you ever go as a pastor, and this is where pastors lose it so many times. They get afraid to tell truth because they're kind of like, I'll get fired. Then great, get fired. By the way, what a great skin to have on your wall. Like, right, why are you not a pastor anymore? My church fired me. Why? Because I told them the truth. Man, I'd take that. Right? I would take that. I would love that. But that's probably the contrarian in me. I've got a little bit of that. I know it. (laughs) My wife definitely knows it. Verse 10. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys the grievous destruction. The sin has affected the widows, the children. It's, a, it's a, the guy who just had the shirt on his back. You're ripping it off of him. It affects everybody. Now, isn't this bad news? Like, thank you for showing up today. We talked about the sins of God's leaders. You're welcome. Thank you for risking the coronavirus and coming out in public. 
But let me say this. I love about the prophets is they always have good news. They always have good news. Look at verse 12 through 13. All this sin, all these sins of the nobles, these sins that these false prophets were justifying, but yet it was no match for the Savior. The prophet pivots. He's got all this bad stuff he says. Then he pivots in verse 12 and look what he says. He looks towards a future day. A future day. And he says this. Basically he said, and he's going to say over and over, you're going to go into exile. Because of your sin, you're going to go into exile. It's going to be bad. You're going to lose your land. Bad, 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 bad. Sin is destroying you. Now look what he says in verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. This is what the Lord is saying. I will, all of Israel... I will gather the remnant of Israel, all the children of Abraham. That includes us, spiritual children of Abraham. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock to its pasture, and a a noisy multitude of men. The prophet says, sin is doing so much harm, but there will come a day when it can't do harm anymore. There's coming a day when the remnant of Israel will be gathered When all the children of of Abraham will be gathered, and like a noisy multitude of men, sin will be gone and righteousness will reign. Heaven will be a noisy multitude of men, women. You're going to see Revelation 4 and 5, the choruses of heaven. It's a loud and noisy place. If you don't like noise, you will not like heaven. I promise you, right? Maybe that would be the one reason you shouldn't get saved, if you don't like noise. It's going to be loud. So he comes in and he paints a picture. By the way, usually with prophecy, there's a close-up and a far-away perspective. So some of this would find partial fulfillment when they return back from Babylonian captivity. Some of it would be midway fulfillment with the coming of Jesus on earth. But the ultimate fulfillment would be the coming day when the kingdom is brought in 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 its full majesty. One of the reasons we'll take communion in a moment, we're looking towards that kingdom to come in its full majesty. Look in verse 13. He who opens the breach goes up before them. Usually, when when you conquered a city, someone would have to... Because usually, if someone was going against your city, right? What you usually try to do is this. You try to throw stuff in front of the gates and block it up so it would make it harder for someone to come through. But usually, in every kind of attack, there had to be a breacher. Someone to bust through the gates, right? Someone who could do it. So he says... He who opens the breach goes up before them. So he who breaks down all the barriers to the gates of the, when they conquer the city. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes before them. So usually the breacher breaks open the gate. The king then comes through and proclaims himself as Lord over that territory. But notice in this, the one who breaches is the same king that passes and this same Lord that is at the head. So in the midst of all this, Micah looks forward towards the gospel, the good news, that we serve a king who is the only one that could breach the curse of the fall of sin in our place. We serve a Lord that's the only king that can deliver us from death, hell, and the grave. We serve a king who is the only true king of king and Lord of lords. So even in the midst of this, he points forward to today that sin will be gone Righteousness will reign. All things will be as they will. And here's the deal. As we end and take communion, everything you see in chapter 2, if you can but keep your eyes on 12 and 13, you're going to make it through this season. I don't know what's coming. Economic disaster? I don't know. I don't know. But I can tell you this. If your eyes are on the kingdom to come, And if your hope is not really in this life, but in the life to come, not that I'm saying eject from this life and don't care. I'm not saying that. God has always wanted, there's always a cultural mandate to exercise dominion over creation. But my heart is not wrapped up ultimately in this kingdom. There's a kingdom to come. And if you put your soul in verse 12 through 13, God, you're going to make it. And if you're fighting sin well, listen to me. If we're fighting sin well, we'll be focused on that kingdom to come. If we're not fighting sin, well, guess what kingdom we'll focus on? This one. Would you stand with me as we pray over taking communion? Oh, Lord, we are needy people, hungry, undeserving. 
in the midst of a hostile culture. Oh, Lord, help us. If someone right now has been on their bed, stewing and loving their sin, meditating on ways to get more of it, would you let communion be a time for them to confess their sin to you? Would you let this communion be a time for us, for us to get a fresh view that you've given us the power to say no to sin and yes to you. And as we take communion, we're reminded of the full impact of the gospel on our lives. Not only forgiving us in eternity, but giving, uh, forgiving us even right now and helping us to live like what eternity will look like right now. Let us take communion, not in light of verses 1 through 11 and the sin that weighs us down, but take it even in the light of verse 12 and 13 of this kingdom. Let us think about the kingdom. Let us think about drinking this cup at the kingdom. Lord, bless this time. Let it, let it renew our souls as we need it every Lord's day.